Welcome to another episode of Alibi the Podcast. This is an initiative started by Kagasa Mahasiswa Undang Undang Sabah. And welcome to another episode of our special podcast series where we invite former members of the judiciary to share their experiences in life in the legal profession and as well as the judiciary, starting their time as a long young lawyer till they made it to the top. I'm your host, Samuel. Joining today with me is my co-host, Granville, and a very, very special guest, Tansri Dato Muhammad Arif Yusof. Uh, a little bit of uh, on Tansri's uh, career. Tansri has an illustrious career. He graduated uh, with a bachelor's of laws and a master's of laws from the University of London. And then he started his career in 1974 as a law lecturer in the law faculty of University of Malaya before venturing into the legal profession. And he was one of the founding partners of Chiang and Arif. From 1993 to 1995, he joined then the newly formed uh, Securities Commission of Malaysia and was even its first director of its market supervision department. In 2008, Dan Sri was appointed as Judicial Commissioner of the High Court of Malaya and was later appointed as Judge as High Court of Malaya in 2009. In 2012, he was elevated to the Court of Appeal before retiring uh, and returning to his firm as a consultant in early 2015. As many of you also know, know as Tan Sri, he was between July 2018 and July 2020. Tan Sri was the Speaker of the House of Representatives, also known as the Dewan Rakyat in the Malaysian Parliament. Once again, Tan Sri, thank you so much for joining us in this podcast and we are, hope you are well and safe today. Glad to be here with you virtually, yes. <laughs> thank you so much, Tan Sri. Thank you so much. So Tansri, uh, how usually how we begin with like all our episodes, we actually would like to take you to the very beginning. And could you tell us about your hometown and where were you born? Uh, all right. I am as far as Sabah as you can get. I'm from the other side <laughs> of the country in Kedah. Yeah. Um, more exactly Sungai Petani. And that, that's where I was born used to be a small town. It's not so small now. Uh, it's got a large city now. So that's it for an early introduction to my hometown. <laughs> yeah. But I've been living yeah. in Selangor for as long as you can remember. Oh, I see, I see. Uh, could you just share with us just one, of, one or two of your uh, most notable of your childhood memories? My childhood memory? Uh, nothing very interesting, you know. I, I am one of those uh, regarded as an independence you know, generation. We entered school in uh, 1957, yeah. saw the formation of Malaysia in 1963, uh, went through the dark period of the emergency. It was quite bad those days, you know. Uh, 69 had first-hand experience with the other unfortunate incident uh, of the nation, uh, the uh, riots of 1969, the suspension of parliament. But we lived through all that, yeah? the Indonesian confrontation and, and so on. So it's been a, quite a long journey, you know? Hmm? 
Uh, I'm now, as you know, 73, going on 74. But um, I'm quite fortunate, as most of those in my generation are, to see this progression yeah, of, of the country. Yeah. Uh, Tanshi, are, are, you, are you the, if, if you don't mind, Tanshi, are you the only child in the family? No, 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 no. I have a very large family. There are seven wow. of us. Wow, because, wow. Um, you know, one has passed on, so there are currently six of us. Um, all in Kuala Lumpur and uh, its immediate environs, except for one, <laughs> was chosen to be in Sungai Tansui, moving on to the next question. Tansui, how, how, how did you discover the path of uh, the legal profession? Because uh, uh, we heard that you actually wanted to become a doctor mm. instead of a lawyer at the very beginning. So how, how, how did that idea of becoming a lawyer you know, came across your mind? Of course, for most students, uh, being a doctor would be the pinnacle of, of a career of sorts. Eh? But then and I entered arts uh, stream and toying with the idea of being an economist. Yeah? Um, but in my lower six, or rather uh, the last year of my college, I became interested in the law because I took a subject. I don't think we should, it's being taught nowadays. Eh? Maybe in UK it's, it's being taught. It's, uh, it was called British government. Yeah, or government in short, got nothing to do with Malaysian government, to do with British government. So my interest in the law stemmed from, from this course. And an excellent teacher that I had who made me read, all of us were in the class, we, we had to read the law reports from the Times of London, you know, um, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and we became interested in it. I thought law was such a logical discipline that I gave up the idea of doing economics somewhere along the way. But actually I ended up after my age in the economics faculty University of Malaya yeah? uh, before I went over to London to, to do the, my legal studies. Actually I enjoy economics too. But it's just that there are too many assumptions in economics as you know, eh? unlike law, which is very logical and you are supposed to give concrete answers uh, to concrete problems, uh, no, no citrus parables, whatever. I know it's, it's all uh, logical and, and clear, yeah. And you get answers at the end of the day. Um, so that attracted me to the law, yeah. I see. Uh, Tanshi, uh, can we know where did you read law uh, uh, prior to becoming a, a lawyer? Well, you know, I got my scholarship to do law, judicial service scholarship quite late, so there wasn't enough time for me to you know, apply to a proper university, let alone a top-notch university. So I started law um, being a student at this little known place called the College of Law. I think it still exists today, eh? yeah? Or Gibson and Weldon's, somewhere along Chancery Lane. So I spent a few months in Gibson and Weldon's uh, before I secured a place at the London School of Economics, which is where I wanted to be, actually. So after that, I switched. I went over to LSE and thoroughly enjoyed myself there. Good uh, environment and uh, 
demonstrations every other semester, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, it was a good place to be. Yeah, yeah. Is is this demonstration? You know, uh, this 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 practice, this culture is is sort of like the norm because we have we have our peers studying in the UK. They say, oh, you know, they they experience demonstrations. You know almost every other day. So is it some part of their culture in, in, in the Western part of the world? Uh, I, I wouldn't say you know, it's an ingrained part of their culture, but it is something that happens when they feel so passionate uh, about certain issues. And they, they just make their feelings felt, they vent their feelings uh, through demonstrations. Most times they are very well ordered, and peaceful, yeah. But those days, sometimes uh, things got out of hand. You remember, this was the Vietnam War era, so feelings ran high uh, over the war and uh, South Africa. You know, the apartheid in South Africa. There were demonstrations around that too, and uh, the Irish problem. So it was quite an interesting time. You got lots of uh, global issues. Uh, so facing in in the UK, yeah. so yeah, demonstration is uh, part and parcel of democratic life. I think so. Uh, should be allowed, I think, with uh, constraints, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, Tanshi, when you were in law school, was um, you know, was the journey, uh, you know, challenging for you? Was it tough? You know, being in law school. Uh. No, no, no. I, I, I enjoyed myself and in law school, as I said just now, you know, a uh, new experience. At that age, it was very easy to absorb a lot of knowledge. You know? It's only later on in life that uh, brain fogging sets in, you know, your hard disk, <laughs> your software, you know, needs some radical change and uh, you know, if the computer gets very tired at the end of the day, you know. Um, but uh, when you're young, you're full of ideas, you're, you, know, you absorb ideas. And of course, there must be a, a proper environment. And LSC, I'm uh, glad to say, provided me that environment. So we, we were studying not just law, you know, but uh, all sorts of disciplines. It was a thinking place. Uh, you could interact with not only, obviously, relations, had lots of uh, relations those days. You know, you know, in my class, there were six of us from Malaysia, yeah? and uh, five from Sabah and Sarawak. So you know, for, we, we had quite a presence. You know how small classes are in UK, but there were many Malaysians there. Yeah? So we would interact, and uh, uh, lunchtime was always full of interactions, discussions, and uh, yeah? it was good. We had Africans and East Europeans and, of course, British and Irish and you know, so communists and socialists and conservatives. It's an interesting place, interesting place. So I was glad I was in London during this era, you know, and I learned a lot. Uh, it was a formative period of, of, of my life. Yeah, yeah. Were there, were there any subjects that you fancied throughout law school? Or maybe, Tanshi, you, you just loved all subjects that were taught in school? Uh, well, you, you know how it was those days. Now it's a bit different. There are lots more subjects to do. 
Um, I enjoyed all the subjects that I took. Of course, the, as far as the electives were concerned, I was a bit adventurous. I took electives, which you know, one thought uh, was quite silly to do, you know. But today, I don't regret it. You know, well, I did my masters on them, but but uh, during my undergraduate days, I took, of course, uh, company law. I've always been interested in commercial law, so I took company law. Again, fortunate. To, to be lectured by uh, Professor Wedderburn, you know, one of the experts in company law then. I took international law and all sorts of things like the not usual evidence and uh, real and personal property and so on and so forth. And then when I did my master's, uh, I got a bit more adventurous. At a time when the, the law of the sea was a very new subject, you didn't have the convention yet. Yeah? I took the law of the sea. Yeah? There were not enough books written as yet. I remember there was one book written by Mr. Colombo, Columbus, huh? the law of the sea. Uh, it was very interesting. And uh, it occupied in the normal textbooks just a small chapter on the law of the sea. But today, of course, it's entirely different. Yeah? And then I did industrial and intellectual property. Those days it was known as uh, Industrial and intellectual property. Yeah? Now, of course, IP. Yeah? And uh, people, many couldn't understand what is this property? Intellectual property, there's property in intellect, you know. Um, they, they could understand industrial property. But intellectual property took a bit of convincing. Again, there were no books written for students. Yeah? So we had to use practitioners' texts. And again, I was fortunate to have a good teacher, Professor Cornish, who was the leading expert in industrial and intellectual property then. And his book is still widely read. He passed away a few years back, I think. He was a very good teacher. You know, we, there were no books, so literally, uh, the materials had to be photostated those days, so or cycle style, eh? and you were relying on that. Yeah? So it was a very useful course, so that later when I entered practice, Quite a large part of my practice had to deal with uh, copyright. Of course, trademarks was very boring, you know? but certainly copyright and trademark infringement, I must say, and patents, uh, the knowledge that I had uh, came in handy. And in fact, I, I introduced the IP course uh, in the University of Malaya um, because I felt it was so important. So, so there's so many lawyers nowadays who specialize in IP. Yeah. Those days there were not many. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that that's what I enjoyed, of course, staple of constitutional law, international law, administrative law. Uh, but I was equally interested in evidence, you know. So I'm I'm a jack of all trades in a way. Uh, even when in, in in the University of Malaya, when I was senior to IP, to constitutional law, evidence, and uh, it was a mixed bag of many things. Uh, Sanjay, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but after uh, completing a law school, you spent a few years in London. Um, yeah. Is it is that true? Yeah, I mean, I, I did my master's so down, mm -hmm. then I went home. Mm -hmm. So the master's and by law and uh, you know, first degree, uh, I was there for five years to complete the entire course. I went back again. Yeah. Uh, to do my postgraduate back to LSE again, but I never completed it. I got uh, 
I told my supervisor, Professor Griffith, Jack Griffith, that I'll come back to Malaysia, I'll finish it. I had nearly completed the thesis. I got back in Malaysia, I got bored. I started working again, and, uh, and there you are. So, Tanshi, as you mentioned just now, uh, you, you were actually a lecturer in UM. Um, can you tell us as to why you decided to teach law instead of practicing it at that point of your life? Uh, this is an interesting twist in my life. Right. <laughs> I, I was a government scholar, yeah? judicial and legal scholar. Yeah? And all of my friends who went with me and those who went after me as well, um, joined uh, the legal service, the judicial legal service. Many became magistrates and from there on they progressed and some became judges and of course, ascended to the highest judiciary. Yeah. But there was a difference in my case. Uh, the rest didn't have a master's. I had a master's, you know. <laughs> um, and the University of Malaya had just been formed. The law faculty, I mean, of the University of Malaya had just been formed. So they were looking for teachers, right? And then when they came to know that I was doing my master's uh, at LSE, they were interested in having me back as a law lecturer. So actually, I don't know who started the, the ball rolling, but I eventually I was you know, called by Tunsali Abbas uh, to meet him, you know, so I went to see him. So in fact, he was the one who told me, you go and join the law faculty, uh, better for you, uh, since you have a master's. So that's how I ended up in the, the law faculty instead of being a magistrate, you know, somewhere in Kuala Tengganu or Zengatani or wherever. <laughs> <laughs> so that changed. Uh, my life, but of course, later on, I, I joined the judiciary. <laughs> so it's one full circle. Yeah, that's the story. Didn't set out to join, but uh, there you are. Certain things in life have a twist. Eh? Yeah. Uh, can I ask Tanshu, what uh, sort of subjects or modules do you taught when you were as uh, time as lecturer? Yeah, I taught evidence. I wish I enjoy even now. Yeah. Civil procedure. The first subject I was made to teach was civil procedure. Oh. You know, so oh. which frankly I didn't enjoy very much, but uh, <laughs> it's important. Until today is important. Yeah, you can't really practice un until you know civil procedure, uh, civil procedure, evidence, um, constitutional law, uh, administrative law. You know, a bit of international law. I even did local government law at uh, one of the universities. Um, not University of Malaya, but one of the local universities wanted to introduce local government law. Uh, so I was invited to also teach local government law. And um, industrial and intellectual property, I've already mentioned, uh, I, I taught that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what was your, you know, because you had an illustrious career, you were a judge, you were a lawyer, but you know, as well as you were a lecturer. So could you tell us, is there anything of being, uh, is there anything that you enjoyed being a lecturer? That I enjoy? Yes. Um, well, as you know, when, when you don't set out to, to, to do the job as a lecturer, you know, it just came. Yeah? And yes, I, di I did enjoy my stay in the University of Malaya teaching law. Yeah? You know, for a young lawyer, uh, it was challenging. Yeah? Uh, those days, we didn't even have sufficient number of uh, 
law lecturers. So we had to start oh, from scratch most times. But it, it was challenging to teach Malaysian law. We were all tutored in English law, but we work hard yeah, to, to, to at least prepare you know, our materials on, on Malaysian law. Yeah? But it was interesting. And um, those days, we had very high quality students entering the law faculty. You know, the creme de la creme. So it was good. A lot of interaction between uh, law students and the lecturers. And uh, of course, there was a transition um, from English to Bahasa Malaysia, right? You wanted to also be conversant in Bahasa Malaysia. Students had to be conversant in both Bahasa Malaysia and English, right? And the lecturers too were expected to teach in Bahasa Malaysia and English uh, equally proficiently. So we used to do that. And I, I again, it was an interesting period of, of my life. I was actually a member of the Dewan Bahasa Isila Committee even, you know? Uh, so we were coining the terms, which uh, are still currently being used. Not all of them though, but uh, many are still currently being used. Yeah? So it was good, it was good. Yeah? And those days, we were teaching not only in the University of Malaya. You know, I had to go sometimes even to Kota Baru, to Nilampuri, oh. Oh. you know, now they're, you know, uh, Islamic Academy of the University of Malaya now, because people were interested in constitutional law. So wow. I used to teach you know, the students in Nilampuri constitutional law. Uh, they were good students, very good students yeah? from not only Malaysia, but from Thailand. They had a you know, really multinational component as well. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. In ITM, and I used to teach in ITM too. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> ITM was guest lecturer, and of course, Aside from the faculty of law, we had to teach the economics faculty students too and arts faculty students too. Everyone wanted to learn about administrative law and constitutional law. You know? And I used to have classes, who the largest class I had ever was uh, about 400 students. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah? wow. Wanting to learn about constitutional law. It's, it's actually quite inspiring to even know that during your time that a lot of people uh, wanted to learn about constitutional law, Tansri. Yeah. So now from your life as a lecturer, now going on to as a sort of uh, your life in the legal profession, uh, could you tell us about, you know, your first about your pupilage and who, who is your pupil master and uh, how was your pupilage like during those uh, days? I did my pupilage twice, you know. Oh, ah. okay. um, tell us I was in the University of Malaya, you know, <laughs> because uh, it was expected for some of us to do our pupilation. I don't to do it. I did it uh, just for the fun of it, actually. Yeah. Um, but um, never got myself called to the board first round. Eh? I decided I might as well enter practice. So I did my chambering again, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, the, the then then partner in Chiang and Arif, those days, or Joseph Tan and Tang, the precursor of Chiang and Arif, uh, uh, Robert Tang, Robert Tan, sorry, Robert yeah. Chong, sorry, <laughs> Robert Chong. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was quite fun. Yeah. Could you tell us uh, about, you know, uh, the sort of type of cases like you did during your privilege, you know, was it mainly civil litigation or was it a type of variety of cases that you did? 
Joseph Tan and Tang, those days, now, of course, China Rave, now CCA, the merger, um, was a commercial law firm yeah? and a corporate law firm as well. So we had our fair share of uh, corporate work yeah? and a litigation revolving around corporate matters. So I, I started my practice as a corporate law person. Yeah? Uh, but of course, with the background in the IP, uh, in no time at all, I was doing a lot of injunctions revolving around IP work, you know. And uh, constitutional law, of course, things came my way uh, to do all those unpopular cases. Yeah? Um, so I did the full works, yeah? banking, uh, company law matters, uh, all types of commercial law issues. IP and uh, the rest. Yeah, really, we 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 didn't specialize so much. I think we came by within our expertise. We, we would do it. Yeah. Uh, even did convincing, of course. Everyone has to do convincing. Yeah, corporate loans and S and P's and transfers and all something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you still remember the first case you took on uh, as a lawyer? First case, I can't yeah. remember. <laughs> it must have been a commercial case. Right. But I remember the first constitutional law case or administrative constitutional case that I took up. Um, I was asked to assist in that case uh, by uh, Tansri Shafi, who was doing this case. So he said, well, come and, and assist me, which I did as his school counsel. Um, that came to be a lead, one of the leading cases in administrative law. Um, that was an interesting case. Yeah. Uh, okay. uh, so as many of our listeners will know, uh, you know, now your law firm is known as Choi and Company plus Chiang and Arif, but you know, mm. back then, uh, what made you want to start up your own firm? Uh, who inspired you and you know, what was the uh, thinking process? We all started in, in Joseph Tan and Tang. You know, okay. and then one Bundy and uh, Joseph Tan was now passed on as well. Decided to uh, migrate to Australia, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so we just took over took over the firm. There was a branch in Ipoh that went its own way, and in Kuala Lumpur, we decided to change that firm into a firm which uh, deals more with litigation because my senior partners were, were not litigation people, you know except for Lo Siu Chang and myself, who are heavily involved in litigation. Uh, so it became uh, very much litigation center for a staple of uh, corporate work was still there, yeah, corporate loans and so on. But it, it, it changed when we took over. We were quite heavily involved in litigation. Those days, yeah. um, was it tough? Uh... So, you know, sort of having to take over from the old reins or you find it like easier because you had, uh, you know, friends who were with you at the firm? Well, it's always tough, you know, when you take over from, from, from uh, people who were more established than you were those days. But we, we, we managed to make a name for ourselves yeah? uh, by sheer hard work. Yeah? And uh, finally, you know, it became quite a good firm. Yeah? today. 
Tanshu, if I may ask, um, uh, why did you take leave to join the Securities Commission? Uh, can you tell uh, us about the role of the of the organization and your experience with them? All right. Again, this is nothing that I plan. Yeah. Um, the powers that be then decided it was uh, about time Malaysia had its own Securities Commission. Yeah. And uh, one of my close friends, Sansri Muni, was chosen to head the Securities Commission. So he invited me over. Um, he knew, you know, we were together in LSE, he was my senior one year, and also in college, in Royal Military College. Uh, I suppose he thought I could do a decent job. <laughs> um, so I took on the job as Director of Market Supervision. And until today, I, I, I keep telling people, this was the most interesting job that I've had. Not legal practice, not being on the bench, but being director of market supervision. It was a very, very interesting and challenging job. Yeah? Literally, I had to start from scratch. It was a kind of public service uh, on my part. Yeah? It was an honor to have been invited to establish market supervision department um, from scratch. Uh, I was uh, the first market supervision director, and I only had one manager under me when I started. After that, we expanded, expanded, and expanded. And uh, it's now one of the main pillars in the Securities Commission of Malaysia. Yeah? It's interesting. But I could do the job because I had litigation experience. Yeah? And um, I did a lot of corporate work, which included securities-related issues. Um, I was also advising, at some point, uh, matters relating to the LSE, uh, KLSE, Global Stock Exchange. Um, so that, that sort of propelled me to, to do the job uh, better as a director of market supervision, to make sure that the markets were orderly and transparent, uh, no hanky-panky and uh, no market manipulation. And I used to travel all over, you know, to Hong Kong and Australia and, wow. and of course, Singapore, um, to make sure that our markets were not infiltrated you know, by, by our market manipulators. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Gave me a valuable insight into the investigative process. Yeah. So this until today, it actually helped me in my legal practice. To the extent that when you have your client or witnesses telling you these are the facts, it is best not to believe 100% of what they say. Right Through the investigative experience, I know that there will be twists and turns and their frailty and memory. And sometimes we end up with a completely different version. You know? So that can only come about through experience of the investigative process and how to handle yeah. Uh, evidence and eventually evidence as presented as facts. That, that's how it works. Eh? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure during your time in the Securities Commission, it was a busy period for you and you know you had a lot on your plate because if I'm not mistaken, that was during when Malaysia's economy was actually booming. Mm. And so was it was it actually tough for you? Yeah, it was tough. It was a very tough job, you know, because uh, it had economic repercussions, right? 
when you are a lawyer dealing for a client, you've only got to worry about that client's interest, really. Yeah? And of course, uh, interest of justice, whatever. But when you're in the Securities Commission, uh, supervising the market, overseeing the market, uh, economic interests of the nation are at stake. Yeah. So I had to do a, a lot of work um, to fully understand uh, the economic uh, the implications of what we were doing. And um, we were developing. We are not merely developing as an equities market. Uh, we were developing as well as a futures market, you know. So uh, we had to do the work and learn as we ran. So I remember one of those things that we had to handle and wipe out those days was this Hansing index thing. A lot of people were cheated. And I'm glad to say uh, my team and I uh, broke that, you know. So we saw the nonsense of, of what was happening. People were manufacturing invoices really or trade bills yeah? um, and a lot of people were duped so we used to raid places uh, caught hold of them and <laughs> and, uh, and they were also dealing um, manipulating uh, through our layered process sometimes they do it in hong kong place an order for malaysian stocks through singapore so they layer it. It was very difficult to, to get hold of uh, the actual culprit sometimes. At the end of the day, ultimately, you know, you may end up with a BVI company. <laughs> but we managed to do it. And uh, there was one other episode, the Union Paper episode. Um, that stock went sky high and then it fell through short selling. So we had to investigate. And then with uh, luck, we managed to get the culprit. Yeah? Um, so the market was on a high. We were doing tremendous volume. So that, that bit of it, we were worried, talking of soft lending. How do we engineer soft lending? Because it was unreal. Gordon Brown, you know, the British Prime Minister, came to Kuala Lumpur and he wanted a briefing. I mean, most people couldn't understand. How come we were doing such high volumes, mm -hmm. even compared to the city? <laughs> Uh, the English stock exchange uh, were not doing that high of volume compared to ours. Yeah? But of course, you see, there were a lot of slush funds coming in from overseas. Yeah? And then we, had, we, we, we investigated and we, we became wiser. So don't be too happy when the, your stock market rides very high. Sometimes because the American you know, mutual funds mm will enter your market fast and they can leave our market, your market, as easily as they, 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 they came. So that's why you have the yo-yo effect. The market has to be stable and it was part of the job uh, of market supervision to ensure transparency and stability in the market. Yeah? So also it was very challenging. It was like being a policeman, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, doing a lawyer's job. Ah, yeah. Well, 
you said you mentioned about you know being a police fan, but I think now from you know a, a, a securities commission to now to a lawyer, I think more people would be more interested now in your sort of uh, your story and on the bench. But mm. your story on the bench actually, I read uh, this was quite interesting. Um, could you tell us sometimes whether it's true that you know actually in becoming a judicial commissioner that you were actually in sort of the realm of politics. Is that true? Could you, you know, let us in on to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was in politics. Uh, because you cannot escape the influence of politics, you know. And being a teacher of constitutional law, you could see, you know, the, the kind of a relationship between the two, you know, law and politics. Eh? So I had a few overtures, even before I finally decided uh, I was not interested in being on the bench. Had I been that interested oh, wow. uh, on being on the bench, I would have uh, done so in the 1970s and became a magistrate. You know? mm -hmm. um, but I was happy practicing the law um, until Tun Hamid called me in the midst of my doing election petitions all over the country. Mm -hmm. um, he said, uh, would you be interested? And I had, you know, refused an earlier overture. Uh, made me feel a bit guilty. So mm -hmm. when, when Hamid asked me, so I said, all right, all right. So I will do another stint of public service. So I said, okay, uh, I will consider and I accept. And uh, that's how I became a judicial commissioner. Uh, mm. Was it sort of a challenge from you know having to switch from you know lawyer to politics now to actually being on the bench was it no, a challenge for you no, no? no it's never you see when you train in the law even though you are in politics in one way or another when you practice law you you know you have to be independent in, in impartial hmm. so it wasn't that difficult and and um of course they didn't force me to do criminal law and and in Kalustor They positioned me in the appellate and special powers division in Kuala Lumpur, which had a backlog, a tremendous backlog. So it was hard work, yeah. But I think I managed to reduce the backlog tremendously. Why? Because uh, I had exposure in administrative and constitutional law, you know, judicial review and all that. I was doing lots of it. Oh. Um, so it wasn't that difficult. Once you have the, with, with teaching experience and the practical experience of being a lawyer, dealing with all these matters. Um, so being a judge was quite easy in terms of the subject matter. The hard part was the backlog. Oh. Yeah. And having to decide fast, and having to write your judgments or grounds of decisions fast. That was quite a burden. Huh? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You said actually it was easy. Um, did, did you know being in legal practice sort of help you settle in the job? Yeah, yeah, you're just doing it another, you're seeing the reverse side. You would have your experience uh, in civil procedure, and they couldn't run circles around you because you know a procedure. You know, mm -hmm. so you don't need to relearn procedure yeah, because you have been doing it uh, so many times over. Um, 
And of course, judicial review, so easy for me, I should say, you know, the principles are all set. Right? It's just applying the principles to the metrics of the case. The difficulty, of course, uh, is the evaluation. You know, as a lawyer, you have one client yeah, for his cause. Right? You don't need to worry about other things. Uh, you worry whether you can win or you can't win. Eh? <laughs> but that is your focus. But as a judge, your focus is not one, you know. You have to evaluate. There's a case for the applicant, there's a case for the respondent, the plaintiff or defendant. And sometimes you get multiple defendants. So that it's not so easy to balance um, the metrics to achieve a just outcome. Yeah, uh, quite quite difficult. Yeah? Yeah. In the midst of uh, on the bench, Tansu, is was there any sort of case that uh, stood out to you when you were being in the bench? Yeah, I, I thought there were so many controversial cases that <laughs> I, I heard, including the Perak case, in which ah, I recused I myself. Yeah. I didn't decide that case. I recused myself, but it landed on my lap. Until today, some people believe that I was the one who delivered the judgment. No, I didn't. I recused <laughs> myself. Yeah? Uh, but I wrote a very long uh, judgment on that. So the principles of recusal are there too. And some people are still using you know, that, that the grounds of judgment that I wrote. Um, I, of course, this, uh, the, the, what they call the um, book manning cases, uh, there were few that I decided from Sisters in Islam, yeah, to the cartoons case, which I enjoyed tremendously. I thought it was a bit of uh, nonsense, banning <laughs> a book of cartoons on the ground of public order. Yeah? And Azuna was very happy that he got the judgment in his favor. Um, to the uh, Teo Bang Hawks matter, uh, but that was when I was on the Court of Appeal. Yeah? So I decided, together with uh, Mao Inquai and uh, Hamid Zultan. Um, and uh, the other thing which uh, I, I count myself fortunate to have been on the bench to hear and decided uh, was the Nick Nazmi case, mm. the Peaceful mm. Assembly Act eh? matter. Uh, that was also controversial. Not many people agreed uh, with our decision, but we thought what we did was right. Mm. So, uh, and there were many others. Like, you know, sometimes people think I'm a constitutional law man, but I did a lot of commercial law cases too. Can't remember mm. those names, but but uh, there there were quite a few commercial law matters that uh, that I did. Yeah. Yes, uh, from all these cases that you know you mentioned, Tansri, is was do you do you find it? Uh, any cases to be the best of your judgment or rather the best known of your judgment to this day? If you could handpick one or two. Uh, the best, the one that I enjoyed most, I think is uh, Sisters of Islam case. Ah, <laughs> right, right. Uh, which has stood the test of time. Yeah. Um, country yeah. um, as an experienced court of appeal judge, You've definitely, um, you know, uh, met or have to sit in in many hearings, uh, listening to lawyers, experienced lawyers, uh, giving their best arguments. So, um, any advice on how to prepare or argue your case effectively, especially at the the um, appellate courts? Yeah, 
know your facts well, know your evidence well, you, you know. And I, I know your law, of course, yeah, well. And when you submit, be clear, be concise. You know, cases don't win an appeal. You can have six or seven volume of cases. They're not going to win your appeal. It's the art of persuasion. Not only at the Court of Appeal, even at the level of the High Court, yeah, is the art of persuasion. Uh, it's an art, so you, you have to accumulate the experience to do it properly. But if you're good, succinct, clear, and uh, you have the case. Uh, you know, it, it is said sometimes that um, if you're good, you can wrap up the case in 10 minutes before the judges. They understand you, they appreciate what you're doing. Yeah. But if you just spend a day trying to convince the judges through long-winded arguments, you might not win the case. You'll be an impressive collector of references of legal cases and all that. But your art of persuasion is not that good. Yeah. Compared to someone who can stand up and say the, the issues in this case are very clear, my lords. One, two, three, four. Yeah. In the interest of justice, that uh, you know, my, my appeal should be allowed, or the appeal of the appellant should be dismissed, and then probably you lay out your arguments succinctly. Yeah? You may win with citing only just a few cases. You know the, the trouble with law students and young lawyers is they think the more cases you cite, the better. Yeah, but it becomes yeah. repetitive. So it's always a uh, you know, good strategy. You get the latest case. And in the latest case or cases, you'll find all the other cases discussed. So why do you want to spend 10 pages when you can do a page or two pages? Yeah, you got to be, be smart. You know? And uh, of course, rehearse. If you have a case that is important to your client and to yourself and to your team, you rehearse, you, you know. I used to do it, um, even at the high court level, you have to rehearse your questions. You have to anticipate the answers. Now, if the answer is A, um, what do you do? If the answer is B, what do you follow up question? Things like that will have to be rehearsed. And even your submissions, you have to rehearse. No one is going to like you when you stand up and you read from a written text, you know, in a monotone. Uh, you got to impress on, on the bench, and the way to do it is you rehearse beforehand. So that becomes second nature. You, you can even cast aside your written submissions, yeah, and more or less talk extemporary. But of course, you would have prepared your submissions well before time. You have your written submissions anyway, yeah. But because you have refer, rehearsed it either alone or with your team, it gets that much easier. So, but of course, it involves very hard work, yeah. Um, but there's not there are no shortcuts, so so being a lawyer is tough, huh? But but <laughs> you can be wise yeah, to to the profession, yeah. Um, and of course nowadays you can use technology. So why why would we want to spend more time uh, working on cases when you can use technology and reduce the time? I use all all kinds of technology, you know, at my disposal. Including voice recognition, you know. Sometimes when you're tired of writing or reading, you dictate. You can talk to the computer if you want. People think you're crazy, whatever. But but there's a merit there. When you dictate, when you rehearse, 
um, and the computer types it for you. Don't need to worry so much about whether your typing is good or not. Um, it clicks, it clicks, you know, and on, on so on and so forth. Yeah? And once you have a case wrapped up, the references are there to archive. So when you have another case like it, don't start from ground zero. Eh? Get your archive materials out, and you work on that basis. It's uh, much easier today than previously. You have your library in your briefcase anyway. You know, uh, the entire library is just a click away. That's easy. Yeah. Uh, now, Tanshi, um, you gave us a lot of exciting points similar to your life. You have, uh, you are currently living in an, you know, exciting uh, point of um, your life. You've uh, from uh, from a lecturer to a, a legal practitioner to uh, serving in the Securities Commission and then serving in the in the judiciary and then subsequently you move on to serving in the in the legislative. Mm. Um, for the uh, benefit of the, our audiences. Um, after the Pakatan Harapan government took over uh, or won the general election, actually you were appointed and then subsequently you took office as a speaker of Dewan Rakyat in July 2018. Uh, but Tanshu, can you actually you know, tell us how did the position of being speaker of parliament you know, came to you? I never applied for the job. No? I mean, I've written it uh, in the book. <laughs> if you read that book that I wrote, Parliament Uninfected, it was like, like you know, the earlier time when I was invited to join the Securities Commission, you know. So uh, I suppose they had hunted me in a way, you know. So they, they, I was invited to consider whether I would like to be elected by the House as the Speaker of the Dewa Rakyat. You know? So it's not something that I lobbied for. I was not desperate for the job. You know? Couldn't tell the whole world that uh, you know, I wanted the job and I'm the best person to for the job and all that. No, you know, in fact, if you read the book, I was a bit reluctant initially. Yeah? I was a bit reluctant, but again, friends. Yeah, it's good to have friends sometimes, but sometimes they create problems for you too. <laughs> so friends, <laughs> uh, friends persuaded me. Yeah? Um, they were. Uh, working you know, on the reforms and uh, the, what the institutional reform committee or something that they had set up the face. So they said, take on the job, no? please. And, uh, we need to clean up parliament uh, and then do reforms <laughs> there. So I said, all right, after some hesitation, I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll lend my service again, yeah? form of public service. <laughs> uh, but uh, I got booted out as you know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> very interesting but because you don't ask for it you don't mm. fight for it so being booted out or being removed um it's not so much an unfortunate episode in my life you know it's just one of those things mm. um, but if had i wanted the job it was a would have been traumatic but it wasn't traumatic mm. uh, it happens it happens uh, no problem i go back to practice where i'm back in practice in a my small way uh, mm. um, as a consultant. Yeah. Uh, 
country for 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 perhaps our listeners who might not be so familiar with you know uh, the separation of powers of parliament. Could you perhaps be kind enough to tell us what is the role of Speaker of Parliament, especially to those who might not be unaware? Yeah. The Speaker is uh, an important function, you know. Um, don't believe what you're seeing in the, the, through the YouTube, whatever. But he's there to perform a very important function. Yeah? Mm -hmm. The House has to be kept orderly. And time must be given to both sides uh, to debate, to ask questions, uh, so that the House Parliament can perform as um, the inquiry of the nation uh, of sorts, eh? as control over the executive to avoid executive excesses. Eh? As a function of Parliament to ensure that there's no abuse of power through transparency, through questioning, through debates, through voting. Yeah? And the speaker must allow this function to be performed because the speaker is not supposed to be the speaker for, for the government. That's the wrong idea. Speaker is elected by the entire house. He is the speaker of the house. So to that extent, he has to be independent and fair to all the MPs in the house. Right? Um, so it is an important office in an important institution, which is why uh, reforms have to be done. I tried my best to do some of it. Yeah? And um, it's ongoing, eh? even today, I mean, there you have reforms. Right? That's the system. Ultimate decisions will be by, by parliament, the collective wisdom of uh, our MPs who represent you all, represent you and I. Yeah? Uh, um, when we talk about separation of powers and in this particular area, the uh, legislative, uh, on paper, it is true that uh, we have separation of power, but sometimes for some people, um, the House, the, the Parliament um, may not seem to be um, very separative in nature because at the end of the day, it is the prime minister who, correct me if I'm wrong, Tanshi, it is the prime minister who appoints a speaker and then um, usually in the house, it's, it's, it's controlled by the, the executive. Would you, would you agree to that, Tanshi? You see, politics and uh, to that extent, constitutional law um, is based on a delicate balance, right? I don't think there is any country in the world where there is a rigid separation of powers, okay? There will be overlaps. In life, there are overlaps. In political life too, there are overlaps. So you have to balance the underlying principles um, against the existing system that you have chosen as your blueprint for good governance. That's what it's about, you know? Good governance and prevention of abuse of power, right? And they can vary over time. Sometimes when the executive is all powerful, right, it may look as if parliament is a government department, but the equation can change as it is today, for instance. When the executive is not that strong, then parliament can be a very powerful institution to keep this balance you know, moving, uh, to stabilize uh, the, the, the system. Right? Which is why today, 
because of the memorandum of uh, political uh, understanding on political trans stability and transformation, um, they have managed to get some good results, if I may say so. Uh, the anti-hopping bill, for instance, has just been passed. They will be receiving the royal assent, so we have been told soon. Yeah? So that, that is a good sign, you know, of a proper functioning parliament. All right. Um, so if you're talking about check and balances, this is a good example. It is not because executive wants it, no. It is because there is a clamor for it within the house, reflecting the clamor for it um, in the country um, that you, you have this desirable outcome. Yeah. Um, and they appointed a committee to look at it and, and uh, listen to the views of opposition as well as government and independent MPs and so on and so forth. And we have a good law, I think. Um, we'll see how it works out in, in practice. Um, so the committee system is not a good one, um, which is now becoming a lot more active eh, after a while. So now we have a committee system which uh, is doing very good work. You see, the Public Accounts Committee, the PAC, for instance, uh, has been studying this latest combat ships yeah. uh, matter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a proper function of parliament. Mm -hmm. Without parliament, you can you can have a study. You know, civil society can do a study, but it doesn't have the full force. Yeah, but when parliament speaks, then by right the nation should uh, stand up and listen. But it, it can only exist when the system has that balance. But when the system does not have the balance, when the executive can say we don't care about parliament. All right, we won't even attend parliament if we feel we don't need to, or appear before the committee if we don't want to. Then the system gets a little bit out of gear. Yeah, um, so it's up to the citizens and their representatives to maintain this delicate balance. Yeah? And this is where political culture, uh, good parliamentary culture, comes into play. You know. So it will take time, but already we are seeing improvements, right? Despite the shouting and uh, <laughs> you know all this nonsense happening, um, but uh, we can change over time. I think we we can do so, um, especially when we are young people like you all are interested in in, in political matters. Yeah? The political parties now centered around in the, the youthful element. It's up to. to uh, the, the younger generation to effect these changes. Uh, we need creative people with creative ideas, uh, people who understand the system and not destroy it. You know? So far, we're seeing all kinds of nonsense happening in parliament, which shouldn't happen. There has to be a stop to it. And I hope, you know, really, I, I mean, I keep telling this to a, a lot of my friends, especially uh, among the young the people, if we can have 20 young MPs after GE15 for a start, eh? yeah. you will see changes. Yeah. The more, the better. But let's start at 20. Uh, young meaning you know, 18 to maybe 30 or 40 at the most. Yeah. You get 25 yeah? young MPs. You see a lot of changes and a lot more ladies. Yeah, 
uh, lady MPs, women MPs, female MPs, whatever is the correct term. We are very sensitive when I use the wrong term. Okay? Uh, maybe, so we have more female uh, MPs. You will also see changes. Yeah. And they are not the ones who create all those problems in, on the floor of the house. Okay? No lady MP has sworn an expletive, so far as I can remember. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so we, we should have them. And uh, a lot more young MPs. It's happening around the world. I don't think Malaysia is going to be the exception to worldwide trend. Yeah? So we have to look up uh, to, to, to better days. Huh? Yeah. yeah um... Tanshi, was it tough for you in the beginning, you know, considering that politics back then, the political scenario back then was a little bit, um, you know, facing a turbulence, if I may. Can it be quite tough, you know, seeing it, or actually sitting on that bench, uh, controlling and, uh, you know, becoming the speaker at that point in time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was tough in a way, you know, but uh, not as tough as being a judge. You know. um, the speaker has to be a master of control. You know, it's like uh, an umpire. He doesn't participate in the debates, nothing. So that the tough part is really to control the misbehavior. Yeah? Uh, the procedure is very simple. It's not something that you need to crack your head for days on end. It's all set through the standing orders. Yeah? But um, if we can improve parliamentary culture, the job will become quite pleasant. Yeah? And that we, we, we must strive uh, to achieve. Uh, you spoke about having a good parliamentary culture. Uh, what, what sort of parliamentary reforms that you, know, you wanted to enact to ensure that we have a better parliamentary system and were you successful in enacting those changes that you wanted to see in the Dewan Rakyat? Well, there's a soft part, there's a, you, you know, the stick, carrot and stick. Yeah? Uh, the soft part is to have a good committee structure. Mm. A lot of the work will be done through committees and uh, you cannot shout and swear in, within committees. Huh? Mm -hmm. so it's like being in a meeting. Okay? So if you have a lot more work done in committees, People will learn what is supposed to be good parliamentary culture. You're already you're seeing it. Yeah? Uh, they can be bipartisan or non-partisan. And uh, one other thing which I introduce, and uh, I'm, I'm glad they have pursued it even now, is the concept of all-party parliamentary groups. You know, MPs get together from across uh, party lines to tackle specific issues. That's good. They've come up with a report on political funding. They came up with a draft on a political funding bill. Um, Cross-party approach. That is good. Yeah? So hopefully all this will translate upwards uh, at uh, the level of the day one. Yeah, the hall. Uh, then you can have wise people debating wisely you know, without getting too emotional. But Malaysia is Malaysia. I mean, we have a hot shortcomings you know, because we are a multinational, uh, multiracial country. So certain shortcomings, uh, mm -hmm. we cannot shy away from the fact that uh, sometimes the race-based uh, narrative is still very much bandied about mm -hmm. uh, uh, to gain electoral support. 
but it is not a must that we continue to destroy ourselves. You know? mm. So mm. things have to change. That's why I think the young will have to lead uh, you know, the, the charge. Change. You cannot be thinking in terms of an outdated, out, outdated um, political model. You know, it could be acceptable in the 70s and 60s or 50s, whatever, but uh, this is 2020, you know? Hmm? So we have mm -hmm. to change. All racial groups will have to accommodate, you know, and come to some consensus, a new consensus, maybe. And if we don't do that, then of course the future looks bleak, you know? Mm -hmm. But it shouldn't be bleak because uh, the racial composition in Malaysia must be seen as an asset. There is strength mm -hmm. in that. So why do we want to shoot ourselves in the foot? You know, <laughs> and Malaysia truly Asia. That each particular group has got the strengths and the weaknesses too. I know. Mm -hmm. uh, it is wrong to speak of one particular group, group A against group B, and we are all in it together. Yeah? Uh, but we must acknowledge our weaknesses too, not merely our strengths. Uh, intra-group and cross-groups and whatever. Yeah? And um, I think the country will progress better. There is always an economic aspect to politics. But often the politicians forget this. So whatever they say or do or plan politically will have economic repercussions. It is as plain as they like. Maybe because it's as plain as they like, uh, they forget about it. You, you know, uh, but you, you must think through all these issues. We need statesmen, we need uh, people of caliber, you know, uh, honest people. Uh, we need to stamp out corruption, the scourge of the nation. We mustn't listen to people who say uh, corruption exists throughout the world, you know. Uh, so what? Right? It's wrong. Uh, we must stamp out corruption. We must stamp out, you know, racism. Uh, so that the country can prosper. Blessed as we are with a lot of natural resources, we can do much better, really. But for that, we need strong institutions. This is where your question uh, comes out towards the beginning, eh? parliament, institutions. We need to strengthen these institutions right through, including you know, the political party system. It will have to be changed as well. We're seeing some good signs from the courts as we speak. That's good. Yeah. And it gives people a lot of confidence in the courts as an institution, the judiciary as an institution. It's very important. So you have parliament, you have the judiciary, you have the executive. Uh, if they all three function appropriately uh, with the balancing, yeah. Um, the country will propel itself forward. Yeah. Just perhaps like a little uh, sort of a side question, especially for our listeners who uh, may want to ask this. Um, uh, you mentioned about having uh, doing better. Um, how would you rate your successor as Speaker of Parliament? Do you think he's doing an okay job or he could do better? He can do better, actually. Yeah, can do better. And although I don't want to be you know, overly critical, yeah. It's all in the book. I have mentioned a few episodes. Mm -hmm. One must understand what the functions are. Yeah. There are a lot of patients to control the crowd. 
Mm. <laughs> it's crowd control. You know, in crowd control, if you shout at the crowd, the crowd will shout back. So then, so, but anyway, we don't talk of one person or two persons or three persons. Yes. Talking about the institution, yeah, the functions of the institution, of the high office. And uh, they all should know what's expected of them. Yeah? Antri, just curious to know. Um, you said parliament is an institution that needs to be, you know, uh, be strengthened and what have you. Do you see parliament in the near future? Because as we all as we all are aware, uh, the speakers, including the deputy speakers, are pro-government. Uh, do you see mm. in the near future that there will be a deputy speaker from the opposition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not something that uh, is in reinventing the wheel. No, it happens in most jurisdictions. In fact, this is one of the things that is being discussed. You know, but somewhat in the in the back burner now. There's no harm. You can have one for the from the, the opposition bench. Yeah? That you maintain this balance again. Nothing wrong. You can also work on the basis of having opposition time. Again, nothing very unusual. Other countries have it. Yeah? So that the opposition will have their time in parliament too. Yeah? Uh, can amend standing orders to accommodate this. Actually, you know, in Slango, they have it. Some kind of opposition time. There's nothing very new. <laughs> uh, they don't call it opposition time. They, they call it uh, what they call leader of the opposition's lot of time. Yeah? So at least there's something for the opposition, and then you don't get overridden by, by the executive, the government. Uh, so given goodwill and statesmanship and an understanding of the proper function of parliament and the allied institutions, then things will be better. Uh, life will be better. The economy will be better. And uh, we focus on developing the nation and in improving the, the, the livelihood of, of, of our citizens. Ultimately, this is what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah? Providing good education, security, uh, food on the table, happiness. Huh? How do we do it? Kind of escape politics. You know? <laughs> policies will have to be made. How are policies made? Through the political process. That is why even the, the young guys who seem to be put off by politics cannot um, adopt the position that because it's so off-puttish, we are not going to be part of the political process. We won't even vote. No, that is self-defeating. You have to be part of the political process. You must vote. You must come out to vote. Because if you don't come out to vote and vote in the right persons, you may end up, much to your regret, um, maintaining those corrupt politicians over and over again. Even if they're not corrupt, they may be unfit for the job. We can't be at this day and age, be tolerating politicians who are not up to scratch. We need people of caliber. You can't have people of, uh, who are not of caliber to be your ministers, surely, would you? You wouldn't want that. And how do you ensure that this is done? You can come out and vote for the right candidates. Doesn't matter which party it's from. I think that's a secondary consideration. But you must vote for the right candidate. Yeah? And then the system becomes more mature. Yeah? They don't have the jumping from party to party again. 
Now mm-hmm. that we have the anti-hopping bill, we don't have corruption. Oh, millions or tens of millions of ringgit passing hands mm-hmm. to entice people to change parties and so on and so forth. We hear. So the system has to be clean, efficient, and patriotic. We don't talk about patriotism, do we? But it is a key component. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you need all this. Um, and lawyers are important in this process. Uh, you all uh, will be members of the profession. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is part of our charter to uphold the cause of justice. Not to make money only, <laughs> mm-hmm. uphold the cause of justice. Mm-hmm. So if there is a need to walk for justice, we should be walking for justice for our principles. You know? not, not. It has to be done. So many issues which needs to be tidied up. You know? So we have to sit down and see what can be done. Yeah? in a proper democratic fashion. <laughs> uh, Malaysia is not known for dramatic kind of upheavals. No, we achieve through democratic means. Yeah. Actually, of course, um, your time as speaker may not last the full term due to certain political uh, scenarios, i.e. the Sheraton move. Tanshi, uh, mm. your maybe ask your experience or maybe your your, your thoughts on the Sheraton move when it happened? What, what, what was the feeling that, you know, that was inside of you? Well, I'm not much of an insider, although Tony Pua has done the painting called Sheraton move uh, with me right in the middle. Yeah? I, I have no privity in terms of knowledge. Yeah? Uh, it was all done by the politicians uh, side. I knew of it only very much later. Yeah. I thought it was unfortunate. Um, it shouldn't happen in a democratic setup. If you want to change the government, you got to go through the ballot box. Yeah. But the combination of the pandemic and the political change was such that we couldn't have in a, a, a general election so soon. No one wanted to have a general election. Yeah. Um, but all said, it shouldn't have happened. We should not have had this exodus of politicians from Pakatan Harapan across the floor to form a new coalition. It's not on. It is fundamentally wrong. In principle, it is wrong. Why should the losing side win and the winning side lose midstream? If you want to change, wait until five years or wait until the time is ripe have a general election yeah and then you have stability in the system but uh, that that is now history you know the anti-hopping legislation is now hopefully or will be in place hopefully and i hope for better better times yeah Yeah. there must be stability in the system of course coalition politics uh opens itself to some sort of instability too Mm-hmm. But it's not something which uh, we cannot, as a country, uh, understand and, and tolerate. You know, that's okay. But um, we have this mass movement um, across the floor, just like that, to bring down a government through backdoor means. Um, that's an, that's an un- unfortunate uh, train of events that we saw. You know, if I wrote extensively on it in uh, two books 
uh, of course, it is Parliament unexpected. And there's also the larger book that I wrote is there, a blow by blow account of what happened. Yeah. Andrew, you, you, you mentioned about principles just now uh, with regards to Lanka Sheraton, but some said it was legally right, but mm. democratically wrong. Your thoughts, Tanji? Yeah, yeah. In terms of the legality, all lawyers, of course, you can see that it's constitutional. Yeah. But in what sense? You have to drill down further and look at constitutional principles. You know, all right. Should it be done this way? Uh, what sort of system uh, are we encouraging? We must have a democratic system. If it is a democratic system, when you have such an upheaval like this, you go back to the polls. Let the people decide, right? So, or have a vote on the floor to see who commands the majority, right? Anyway, I think most of us have learned a valuable lesson from it. Huh? Definitely, yeah. Uh, uh, you look what, what happened after that. We have Sabah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was bad. Mm. People hop from one place to another and sometimes multiple times. Uh, uh, these are old politics. Uh, you look forward oh. to new politics. Yes, yes. Mm. So better parliamentary culture and uh, better responsibility, politics of statesmanship, and like I say, politics of patriotism, which mm -hmm. is very important. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, looking back, Tanshri, if was there being by being in the you know, speaker's position, was there anything perhaps you have wished to do differently? And given the chance, again, would you perhaps want, would want to be the speaker of Dewan Rakyat once more? No, no, my, my time has come and passed. Eh? I, don't, <laughs> I don't want a job. Yeah? Uh, done things differently, I, I suppose I would. I could have been tougher. You know, I wanted to, but because uh of the delicacy of the matter and the change of government and all that and so you can't be too tough on your mps on both sides yeah but i think now is a time that you have to be tough so you need to change the standing orders i wanted to do it actually change the standing orders and change the act uh, powers house of uh, parliament powers and act uh, 1952 huh? powers and privileges act mm. Um, we must have more teeth given to parliament. Um, the power to suspend and to impose hefty files on MPs who misbehave right? through a simpler procedure. Um, you have to do it because um, unless those who misbehave don't get elected again. Yeah, yeah. But um, if they are re-elected, then something must be done to maintain order in the house and to regain the confidence of the rakyat. I don't think those people have at the back of their minds uh, this notion of, have I got the confidence of the rakyat eh, by doing all this nonsense? So those who indulge in such nonsense ought to be fined properly, suspended for a longer period of time. You know, those days, two days I would give. You know, I think it's very lenient. Uh, I would encourage the speaker's uh, office to be even tougher on this because it's got a little bit out of hand. Both sides, eh? I'm not speaking of only the opposition eh? or the government. Eh? Both can equally misbehave. So if someone misbehaves, maybe suspension of six months. 
as has been done in the past, you know, Tan Sri Zahir, when Sultan Zahir uh, used to suspend MPs for a long period. But of course, he didn't find them too. But I think it is good to change the law of you in the process of doing it to the extent that parliament or its committees can find a recalcitrant MPs or at least deny them, you know, some of the allowances that they get. Eventually, if it hurts at first, then they will behave properly. You know? So there are many things that can be done. For instance, attendance of MPs. I think there must be a way of compelling them to attend every day for more days in a year. Yeah? I don't think we can tolerate the system forever and ever. Right? You just sit for minimum number of days in the year. and uh, They should be made to sit more regularly, get the job done. There are many things that will have to be passed by parliament. So you have to sit every other day. Yeah? Short breaks in between. Yeah? Mm -hmm. um, many things, like many things. So. Okay, uh, so now we're sort of going to the uh, end part of our podcast country where we have sort of uh, general questions we'd like to ask all of our special guests. So it's just like a general question, so a bit of a Q&A session. Uh, G, would you like to start us off? Oh, yes, definitely. Uh... Country in this current age, especially uh, in this uh, technology era, how important is it for one, especially the younger generation, uh, to be aware of um, current government or political awareness in this country? Yeah, yeah, I, I think I stated that earlier, haven't I? But, uh, everyone must be politically aware. I know it's very difficult sometimes especially among the young, yeah? uh, they don't think there's anything for them yeah? by being politically uh, active. Yeah? Um, there's a kind of uh, fatigue of some sort against politics yeah? and the sheer uselessness of politics according to them. But politics is never useless. Yeah? Politics is not always very dirty. It can be very dirty, but it's not politics that's dirty. It's people in politics. Yeah? So I say you need statesmen. How do you get your statesmen? You've got to inculcate your statesmen from a young age. Right? Uh, through education, through training, um, through all sorts of programs uh, among the young. Yeah? You, you must be politically aware. No question about it. There's no reason why you cannot be politically aware because, uh, like you say, technology is available. You, you know, maybe you should fine tune that technology to make people more receptive to politics. Yeah, you have seen the transition from Facebook to YouTube, you know, to TikTok. Huh? Uh, as we get more sophisticated, you know, the attention span gets lesser and lesser. So back to the question you posed to me earlier, you know, how do you persuade uh, judges on the bench? Same thing. Yeah. Uh, the art of persuasion use the least number of words with the maximum effect. <laughs> you know, um, that sort of thing. So technology is, can be very helpful. Yeah? The style of politicking too must change with technology. Uh, if, but you ask me, there is no need today to have your massive charamas. It's out of date, you know. 
So every time we have an election, we have hundreds of thousands of flags and waste money. Right? We should be more mature. Um, in countries like Europe or even Turkey, yeah, they don't do this sort of thing. Yeah, you don't spend millions of ringgit on flags for elections. Yeah, you 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 engage through television or radio. Then you go out to vote. Right? Uh, so you don't need to be accosted along the way, you know, to the voting station. Old-fashioned politics. Yeah, people think if they put up. Uh, the highest flagpole, they will win elections. You know, or you put more flags up along, along the bridges in the constituency, you can win elections. That's old style politics, you know. So, or you have to visit every house to convince a machi and machi. Again, very old style politics. You can persuade, uh, perhaps um, more eloquently, more effectively, through TikTok, for instance, or through Cool calls, the telephone. Maybe. Yeah. This way technology again comes in handy. You have you have your big data all laid out. You will know exactly the voting trends and you target your campaign. So mm. that's a wave of the future. I hope they're thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Uh, well, we thought we sort of uh, cloud in on uh, your other side project, Tanshri. I don't think people could see, but uh, your book, Tantri, um, uh, mm. Parliament Expected, uh, Recollections of Parliament Politics and Pandemic in Malaysia. Uh, could you tell us, our listeners, what, what uh, is this book really about and uh, why you decided to write about your journey as speaker? I was either fortunate or unfortunately in, you know, right in the center of the upheavals yeah, in uh, 2019. 2020, yeah. Mm. So the, the, that that transition started off well, and then you have a lot of you know upheavals, mini upheavals along the way. So I felt that it had to be recorded, right? And then we have the pandemic too. So the, the book is subtitled "Recollections of Parliament Politics and the Pandemic." Yeah. So it was a potent mixture. So I spent some time discussing it. It has to be recorded, you know. So. Mm. But the book is not so much about me. You'll read through the book, you will not find an autobiography. No, it is a parliamentary story. It is something that I've written so that people understand what happened, right? Um, and why certain things should not have happened. Uh, if you, after reading the book, you begin to understand better uh, the functions of parliament, uh, parliamentary proceedings, and I would have achieved my purpose. All right. To me, um, an important part of the book is in the closing chapter, yeah? in closing, where I have tied the strands together. And uh, I've always discussed my personal views of the state of the nation. Yeah. And I did say the jury is still out there. Eh? So one has to look at current developments. If I bring out a second edition, I will revise it. <laughs> um, and have some good words to say. It's not meant as a self-praised book. It's not that. Um, it's already in second print, by the way. So, uh, which means to say a lot of people are reading it, which is good. Thankful for it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh, for our audiences, 
you guys can get it. It's a uh, Parliament Unexpected by Tan Sri Arif. It is sold at a very affordable price, and everyone should have it. I think to my own opinion here. Um, Tan Sri, before we end, one last uh, one last question for you, Tan Sri. Uh, any words of advice or encouragement for new upcoming lawyers or judges to be, or maybe speaker of parliament to be? Oh, okay. I don't know uh, what advice I can give further, uh, except to work hard and be honest, um, love your country, be, be patriotic, polish up your skills, yeah? not only the technical skills, but uh, also your soft skills. Yeah, you know, so and be thankful in a way that you are in Malaysia, in a multicultural, multiracial society, which is unparalleled in the world. I don't think you find another country like this. You know? <laughs> uh, some countries are very near to it, but Mauritius, whatever. But the mix is different. Yeah, but here you have a fantastic mix of cultures and histories. Yeah? and people uh, who have a part to play in the development of this country. And I think that sooner we lessen our talk of racial politics, yeah, so much the better. Yeah? And maybe in 20 years' time, maybe 30 years' time, we will see a different Malaysia. Mm. The Malaysia of today is already different compared to the Malaysia of 1957. When I entered school, they're mm -hmm. very different. Yeah? So we can only progress further and make sure as we progress further, we must not forget the past and our mistakes. We must learn from our mistakes and uh, not repeat the unfortunate past. And the young must come up in full force, engage, talk, you know, through civil societies, uh, through new political groupings. Yeah? Make yourself heard, but um, not in compartmentalized kind of groups, but um, as Malaysians. Okay? Got to work hard at it. You know? so, um, as Malaysians, uh, Malays, Chinese, Kedazan, Murus, East and West, we've got to get together yeah? and talk as a nation, yeah? grounded on uh, deep seated. Patriotism. I'm sorry I have to repeat it because it's forgotten those times. Yeah? Patriotism and the basic principles of the nation. That's all that I can say, actually. I mean, yeah, occasionally people ask me whether they should uh, consider elevation to the bench or not. Yeah, so, so. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, I, I told someone just last week, it's tough, it's a tough job, but it can be fulfilling too. You know? mm -hmm. So, if mm -hmm. you feel that you want to be part of the judiciary, work hard at it, yeah? polish up all your skills, mm -hmm. um, and you know it's going to be a very hard job, yeah? but uh, yeah, yeah, it can be satisfying too. Yeah? Which job is not hard, as you tell me? Yeah? Every job is difficult. Yeah? Yes, true. Yes. That is wise indeed, yes. Well, that's it, I think, for all our listeners, for the time we have with uh, Tan Shri. <coughs> Thank you for listening to the Alibi podcast. And we hope that you enjoyed this episode with the special series with former judges. And 
We hope to look uh, forward to more talk, uh, talking to more relatable and relevant uh, Sabahan law student topics. A massive thanks to our special <laughs> guest, Tan Sri. Thank you, Tan Sri. For coming. Over. Oh, no, no, no. Thank you for listening to an old man talking. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> wise, <laughs> wise. Old man. Water, wise, a very wise one, Tan Sri. You're a very knowledgeable. Man. Yes. Please do subscribe to us and stay relevant on all our latest content. Till then, and we will see you in our latest episode. Thank you. Goodbye. Okay, Sorry now that I'm a little late. I apologize that you had to wait. Totally slipped my mind I lost all my sense of time So buy me that drink and just let me think And I'll tell you the reasons why